0: Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Amy J. Luke talks about spatial rhetorics, public memory, archival research, dual credit and concurrent enrollment, and erasing borders between high school and higher education. Amy J. Luke is Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Composition at Santa Clara University, where her research and teaching focus on histories of rhetorical instruction and practice, women's rhetoric, feminist historiography, and public memory. Her book, A Shared History, Writing in the High School, College, and University, 1856-1886, to 1886, brings together several of these research threads, interrogating the ostensible high school-college divide and the role it has played in shaping writing instruction in the U.S. Her recent research builds on this work by attending to the conceptual boundaries and metaphors, shaping history and the remembrance at various sites, from universities and the tribal homelands on which they were built, to historic attractions like the Winchester Mystery House. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Your teaching and research focus on spatial rhetorics and public memory. How do these frameworks inform your approach to teaching writing and what kinds of assignments do you use in your classroom to help center spatial rhetorics and public memory?
1: So uh, first of all, I wanna just say thank you again, Shane, for having me on the show. I am a really big fan and I'm so grateful to be talking with you. Um, So spatial rhetorics and public memory are key terms that I've come to kind of more recently in my research and teaching to name what was kind of a diffuse basket of practices and interests that uh, began with a more narrow interest in rhetorical histories and archival research practices for me, um, but gradually expanded to encompass an attention to the sites of those histories and the boundaries and processes of historiography and cultural formation that were uh, more broad. So I've kind of come to these concepts of spatial rhetoric and public memory um, to make these histories and um, processes of commemoration, which are things that I was um, finding myself really interested in, kind of more generally applicable to students and writers and um, people in lots of different kinds of positions. So questions of public memory for me get beyond questions of like capital H history (laughs) to broader questions of how we come to know the past um, and how we come to know the past of others and how we know, come to know ourselves in relation to those um, processes. As part of this, I've found myself wanting to think more about the role of place in the production of rhetorics and histories as well. And the concept of spatial rhetorics is a good way to talk with students about place, built environment, design, and all of these other material factors that are shaping the ways that they know, and especially what they know and understand about historical knowledges, but not only that, right? The kind of the um, attention to uh, spatial rhetorics allows us to engage um, our environment more critically in general. Um, and so the, the historical part of it Is really pressing and relevant today. Um, It's it's an easier case to make recently with public debates about monuments and naming and cultural memory issues, kind of being in the news in a lot of places. You know, in ways that are explicitly historical. But again, it also sets up the conversation about discourse and representation and identity in the present more broadly. In the writing classroom, um, for me, this might begin with a basic attention to where students are writing, what room or seat, public or private spaces, home or campus, and thinking about how that affects the ways they're conceptualizing writing itself, touching on embodiment and affect and material rhetorics more broadly as part of that process. We might read the classroom as a space. We might look at how the space marks itself um, as a space for certain people, certain uses, and not others. And um, that provides this kind of pathway into attending uh, to that kind of uh, discursive and material construction of of space, um, you know, historically as well. Um, because of the kind of residual, um, you know, material histories of the spaces that we occupy over time. So we might also look at the ways space or place are invoked or used as metaphors, like interrogating the meaning that kind of has become packed into representations of college writing, for instance. If we are relying on the image of the college classroom and the college campus or a spatial arrangement of the kind of academic trajectory that we imagine from K12 to college in this kind of vertical ladder what are all of the ways that space comes into play in the in the kind of metaphorically as we think about our experiences and these and these places we occupy as well so one assignment that I've done for a long time in my first year writing courses, but have only kind of more recently thought of in terms of spatial rhetorics and public memory involves uh, reading and comparing a few different representations of what college is or what it's about, right? And so they they don't seem to have anything to do with space or um, public memory. They just are, are representations of like, here's what here's what college is or should be, different different essays, um, commencement speeches, etc. And so we've we've for a long time kind of had this examination of what, what do we mean by college? What do we mean by college writing as part of my classes? Is it an experience? Is it a place? Is it a curriculum? Is it a stage of life? Is it two years? Is it four years? But the more recent kind of frame of spatial rhetorics and public memory helps us to think of the ways that these essays and the images of college that they circulate are actually drawing on really powerful discourses and rhetorics that are located and embodied and that circulate ideas about space and place and produce exclusions from places like college campuses in their course. So the ways ideas are um, shaped by places and places are constituted by these ideas. what, What does it even mean or do to understand a space or a set of, set of practices in relation to a college campus, quote unquote, right? How is that designation shaping discourse, experience, and and historical memory? Again, this is a, a kind of activity that I've been that I've been doing in the classroom, but have kind of come into this frame of spatial rhetorics, but. Spatial rhetorics and public memory also, I think really importantly provide a pathway out of the classroom uh, to read the campus and the surrounding community as rhetorical commemorative landscapes that are doing work as well. So for instance, our university is located at the site of um, a historic Spanish mission, one of the 21 colonial outposts in um, Alta California. So historical appeals are kind of everywhere here (laughs) and uh, really um, in a really self-apparently historical way. So we use the campus in my classes as a site of public memory to study because we all have access to it and we all have attachment to it and investment in it um, as students and faculty here. I've been really fortunate to have team taught a class with an anthropologist at my university, Lee Panich, who's an expert in uh, native Ohlone history and culture at the missions. And in those writing classes, we study the ways history and memory are shaped and circulated here, which is really powerful um, for a lot of reasons, one of which being that students come in knowing just very little about California Indian history and the history of the missions before they come into this class, um, even though they walk by the mission built by Native Ohlone people every day. And um, so in addition to the mission and um, in other assignments and upper division writing courses, we look at sites significant to them. And we look at the ways that they construct a sense of place and historical memory um, in the same way, whether they are historical sites or not, we can apply that same set of skills to kind of critically reading and engaging um, the different spaces that they occupy in their lives. So again, the spatial rhetorics and public memory piece, I think helps students to see the work of rhetoric and writing all around them um, in these kind of various texts and materials, not just in the things that they're reading on a page. And to see the ways that they are historical agents themselves, they are parts of history, they're shaping and reflecting history. So I want that broader attention to the ways the world is written to be the what we're looking at in writing classes.
0: As you're examining histories and spaces and, and memories, I imagine this work intersects with archival research perhaps institutional archives, and maybe even special collections. How do you talk about archives and archival research with students? And how do you invite them to to participate in, and take interest in archival research? Has there been a particular assignment or activity that encourages students to do this work successfully in your own writing class?
1: So first I want to... Acknowledge that there are, of course, lots of ways to use and study archives and archives are lots of different things. Um, but um, what I really like to do in my classes is, as you're suggesting, that kind of most familiar and traditional version of archives, um, institutional archives and special collections at um, an institute, the institution I'm at or community archives in the surrounding area and looking at historical texts and artifacts. And that is something that is unexpected for students in a lot of ways. And they don't think that that's something that they're going to be doing coming into the class. But, you know, surprisingly or not, um, I think archives really sell themselves to students Um, as soon as they've gotten in there, um, even though most students don't necessarily like history with a capital H, they don't think they do. Um, they almost can't help but find historical texts and objects interesting, even just out of curiosity. And uh, this is really, you know, a kind of powerful, there's, there's really kind of a powerful political movement to, to reconsider history and memory right now, as we were talking about, and students have that in their pocket as well. They're, they're kind of suspicious or, or, or curious about the ways that histories have been uh, constructed in the past. And so I really build on that curiosity and um, pin it to, those questions of location and public remembrance. You know, one of the things that we do is, is encourage them to seek their own interests and experiences in the archive and to see the ways those materials provide different perspectives on their own experiences and historical consciousness. Um, And to be critical of that whole process of representation and remembrance as well in the process. So, I really like working with the collections at our own institution because they have this kind of immediate local resonance and relevance for students who, you know. Have at least some attachment to the history of the school they're attending, even when the archives and institutions are seriously limited, like ours, by their colonial nature, um, by the exclusions um, in admissions. Um, and that's an object of inquiry for us as well, right? So our school, for instance, has been predominantly white. Um, you know, it's on this historical, you know, historic colonial um, center. It was only co-educational in the, in the 1960s. Why do these silences and omissions and exclusions exist in the historical record of our institution? Not abstractly. But in our archives, right? We can see that, we can localize it. And and where are you in the archives or not? Um, Those are really kind of powerful questions that we can be engaging. Some activities that I've used in the classroom to kind of get to that, Um, to kind of bring that relevance and that that kind of personal stakes into it. One of them is um, the digital librarian at my school, actually, Summer Sheetenhelm helped to develop a tweet composing exercise in this vein where um, students take an item from um, a digital or physical collection that we're looking at because, you know, all of the work that we're doing with archives has, of course, been in digital archives recently in our digital collections. um, And that's a really interesting transformation. What I used to like to do was to really examine the differences between engaging physical archives and digital archives and having that be part of the work we did. Uh, you know, so students can select an item from a digital or physical collection, and um, they were asked to compose a tweet about its relevance to some online audience. Um, it's a really basic activity, a really easy one. It took one afternoon, but it led students into um, beginning to answer for themselves that that kind of nagging question of who cares? No, like really, who cares? Tag them, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, what does this have to do with with something that people today care about? What does this, this old um, you know, course catalog have to do with some issue um, that, that is in the, the public discourse right now? So another uh, activity that we do is to encourage students to engage with archives by thinking about the textual traces of their own lives, physical and digital, Um, So we often begin archival research processes by a practice of what I call kind of self-curation where students might select and interpret a set of artifacts that they think represent their literacies and identities and um, reflect on what a researcher 100 years from now might understand or not, um, or might misunderstand as a result of, of kind of coming across that body of textual traces Um, in the future, because that's what we're doing, right? We're coming across this kind of random collection of of traces and trying to piece together stories as a result. And so even when you have control over what would be in your archive, how does that both reveal and conceal aspects of your experience and your your history for potential researchers? And that helps students to, to be more critical and ethical researchers when they're then representing other people's lives and documents as well. And it helps them, again, to see the ways that those documents are people as well, um, and they, they they are past lives.
0: Your book, A Shared History, Writing in the High School, College, and University, 1856 to 1886, explores the relationship between different educational formations in the U.S. and how we think about high school and college writing today especially in relation to dual credit and concurrent enrollment. Can you talk more about your motivations behind this book and what you hope readers and teachers and students will take away from it?
1: You know, the book was grounded initially in terms of the motivations behind it in this simple um, kind of archival moment of my own, uh, this discovery, which was um, the 1860 exam questions for two local high schools called male high school and female high school in Louisville, uh, where uh, I was doing my PhD. And what motivated this research and the eventual book was simply My attempt to understand um, how these schools were being conceptualized and what they meant in their own kind of historical moment in relation to one another uh, and to the role of gender in that initially was one thing I was interested in. And in relation to other educational forms and practices in the history of rhetorical education that I was trying to kind of understand. So as I started to do even kind of minor initial research on these schools from this paper, Know the the exam papers, I I just got really confused fast (laughs) because uh, the terminology and the organizational structure they were describing, they were sometimes called higher schools. Sometimes they used the term higher learning. Other times they were talking about seminary or college or even university. And they were sometimes talking about a place or other times talking more about the curriculum. And I just couldn't track which terms seem to indicate what, which is like a basic thing to try to attend to as someone who studies language and rhetoric, not to mention trying to study history. So uh, what motivated me initially was just this puzzle and my desire to figure out why these schools' practices seemed to kind of contradict or complicate so much of what I had understood nineteenth century rhetorical education and practice to do. It just did not map on to the other histories that I had read uh, that were focusing primarily on overtly college level institutions. And it wasn't clear to me that they weren't college level. Um, it wasn't clear to me that it that it should be separated. Um, but instead, it was complicating the story that, ha- that I had encountered from that other perspective. As I proceeded in the, in the research process, it transformed into this broader insight, kind of less about finding this or that exception to what I thought I knew um, and correcting the record, which is kind of where I began, and turned instead to a focus on the instability of these categories and the futility of that effort to pin down these boundaries and borders to these educational practices and sites. So the slippages started to become the point, the blurred boundaries, You know that was um, a possible title idea originally <laughs> or <laughs> composing the high school was my other one to um, get that sense of process, right? My publisher had other ideas, but you know, as I was working on the book after the dissertation research, I just became more interested to in uh, the difference that race and gender makes in the permeability or the the impermeability of those boundaries as well. Uh, what we allow. Where we decide to uphold those boundaries and where we decide to stretch them. That's very much what the book is about as well. Um, it's it's not the actual practices that have defined these institutions and shaped their status and designations, but, in fact, um, you know, these other kinds of considerations of of policing certain bodies, certain uh, student student bodies. Um, and we need to examine that history and that legacy into the into the present. So, What I hope readers will take away from the book is that educational processes, practices have always been more complexly constituted than we want to believe, and that educators in the schools have been theorizing that complexity since the beginning and working against those boundaries from um, their different positions. Uh, pretty much every reform and innovation, in fact, is, is a return to some insight or effort that educators from the past have already had. And the expectation of uniformity practice and the shorthands we've come up with to characterize historical practices and particular sites, this process that I was engaging in myself as a historian, as a historiographer, Um, That's part of what's limited that process and not allowed us to see those kinds of those returns. The boundaries we conceptually are drawing around these practices, that's part of what obscures those innovations from our view and makes them harder to um, enact in the classroom. They're really part of the problem. So by the end of the book, and especially in subsequent work that I've been doing with Bryce Nordquist, who's at Syracuse, I've been really interested in the ways that kind of emergent, contingent, fluent mobilities of practice that are enacted in classrooms and schools can't be confined to these categories or containers and how that's just really the wrong way to think about education. It's what sociolinguist Gallen Irvine called boundarying activities. That's that focus on boundaries or containers rather than on the activities themselves that are supposedly being contained. Uh, so it's really about looking not at the high school and college as already existing containers, but instead considering the ways that they have been and are being created into the present.
0: Amy, this is my last question. This notion and understanding of boundary is really interesting. How would you encourage teachers and students to reconsider institutional boundaries and classroom walls and borders? What future directions would you like to see the field of writing studies take in erasing educational lines and building relationships between different learning environments like high school and college?
1: Yeah, this is such an important question that I have only the beginnings of an answer to. (laughs) But... I think that part of that process is simply noticing and acknowledging that boundarying activity and our own participation in it. Um, noticing the ways we reify those boundaries um, in our own uh, discourse and our own approaches to to the classroom. To the writing that we're doing, the ways we talk about writing in the classroom or outside, the ways we talk about uh, college uh, school literacies, community literacies, um, and just just really kind of attending to it. Again, I think the work of erasing educational lines or boundaries and building relationships between different education spaces comes from then focusing on emergent practices and processes of learning and unlearning and moving away from a hierarchically ordered, tightly scaffolded, contained conception of what education is across grade levels and towards just a messier model of repeated encounters that is just really emergent and enacted. You know, I, I want to acknowledge in this that, that I know that that's like a kind of frustrating thing for people in K-12 spaces to hear, right? I've, I've heard this before that, well, yeah, sure, that'd be lovely, but that is not our reality in K-12 um, contexts where, you know, we have these rigid testing requirements, um, this really kind of standardized experience as an ideal, um, and that's very real. Um, but even without changes or immediate changes to that system, I just don't think we have to buy it as an accurate description of how learning proceeds. You know, yes, I believe in scaffolding individual assignments and learning experiences. I do that. I know there is a progressive process of learning on some level, but it's on an individual level. And even then it's not linear. So you know, when it comes to scaling educational experiences across time and space, it's just an illusion and one that's stopping us from noticing and valuing and supporting other ways of practicing literacy and learning. So again, I think part of the reconsideration boundaries and borders comes from breaking that kind of contained containerized conception of educational leveling progressive courses grade levels learning outcomes as the model and more focus on transfer and overlaps and relationality intentions and friction in the literacy practices and students' um, practices that teachers and students um, are in, are enacting, and articulating with that comes before with what comes before and what comes after in our students' futures is just again not the best focus to me. It's not as good as focusing on what they're doing right now. What are their experiences and habits of mind that they might practice to draw on the language of the framework for success, <laughs> which is a, a, a document that I cite in the book. Um, I like that approach, especially when it helps us, you know, break from this reified notion of college level or grade level or whatnot as though they are discrete and never overlapping. Um, that's where I'd like to see the field go.
0: Thanks Amy and thank you pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.